um, as we read God's Word. If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Esther chapter 9. We'll be reading verses 1 through 19. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and the edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Eridatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Eridai, and Bysatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's verdict, this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you, Will. Thank you, David, for being here. Such a special morning. Church, don't tell him about that private jet that I've got coming. Just kidding. So good to have you here, man. What a blessing. Well, as we approach Veterans Day this week, celebrating those who have served in our armed forces who are currently serving, you know, I don't know if, it's, if you're like me, but my mind kind of goes to some of the great battles in our country's history, the, the battles that have shaped who we are as a people. And so maybe you think of, of D-Day and the Battle of Normandy as the troops landed in the, on the shores of France and took on Nazi Germany, or maybe it's the Battle of Iwo Jima where you have the famous pictures there where the six Marines are, are lifting the flag up on the top of the hill, Mount Sarabuchi. Maybe it's the Battle of Saratoga 
the turning point in the Revolutionary War. Maybe it's the Battle of Gettysburg, you know, where the, the Union forces there defend Pickett's Charge in kind of the defining moment of the Civil War. Iconic battles they gave, they gave birth to our nation that um, you could argue saved our nation and, and continue to shape our nation. Well, as we look at our passage this morning in the book of Esther, we're going to see one of those battles that's kind of iconic battles for the Jews. This is like a, a Gettysburg or a Saratoga or a D-Day. This is one of the most famous battles, one of the most famous victories in the history of the Jewish people, a, a, a victory so special that it is still celebrated every single year to this day. That's how big of a deal it is to them. And, and a turning point for them and really completing the great reversal that we see in the story of Esther. So we pick up in chapter nine and the day has finally come to fight, okay? So Esther has been placed as a queen for a time such as this and the time has come to fight. The day has arrived that um, Haman's edict pointed towards. The day has arrived that Mordecai's edict pointed towards and now is the time to fight. So on, on one side, you have the enemies of the Jews, so to speak, and they are after annihilation. And on the other side, you have the Jews, and they're fighting for their preservation. And it's go time. Everything that we've read now leads to this moment. And the author wastes no time in telling us the result of the battle. Like, he's not going to make us read a lot to see who wins, because we find out in verse 1 that it's a massacre. We find out in verse 1 that it's a, it's a romp, that the Jews are victorious. It says, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. And so what we, what we find out from the beginning is this is going to be a good day for the Jews. Like they are going to dominate the battle. They are going to win this war. They are going to be victorious. And, and while certain annihilation is what it looked like months ago, it's actually going to be the day of one of their greatest victories. It's going to be the great reversal. And they will be victorious. And so verse 1 kind of gives the summary statement. And then you get into verses 2 through 4, and they're going to give what I call kind of the keys to victory. What are the keys to victory for the Jews on this special day for this, this iconic battle? And as we look at these keys to victory, we're going to notice once again kind of the complement, follow me, the complement of the, the practical and the providential and how they, they're, they're interweaving themselves here, the practical and the providential, because none of these advantages they have are miraculous. None of them are ultimately miraculous, but they are all a result of God's providences, natural occurrences brought about by his supernatural power that are going to lead to victory. And I actually want to camp out here a little bit on these, these keys to victory, because not only are they keys that are going to lead to the Jewish victory over their enemies, but I think they're applicable for us to this day and how we can walk in victory as God's people or how walking in these keys to victory bring flourishing and victory in the lives of his people. And so I want to take a little bit of time, maybe an inordinate amount of time, in the passage on these few verses, and I'm just going to highlight three keys, three things. And the first one is that the Jews are deeply united. 
They are deeply united. Look at verse 2. It says, The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. Like nothing unites quite like the need to fight for your existence. Like if we were being attacked, we would probably have fewer conversations about, you know, what, what kind of worship we should have. Those would go by the wayside because it's time to fight. And that becomes the pressing issue. And so here we go, the, the, the people of God here, the Jews, they unite, they gather, and they gather united in their mission. What is their mission? To fight for their right to exist. To lay hands on those who sought them harm. And when it comes to unity, and, and in particular, unity rooted in a collective mission. Unity rooted in a collective purpose great things happen. And that, that could be for an army here, for a team, for a business, for the church. Unity for the church. I mean, how important is unity in the church? Like if I just ask you, how important is unity? I, I don't think it's something that many people put on the top rung. That's my guess is that most people, when they're kind of doing their taxonomy of what's important with God's people in the church, they're not just looking to unity up real high. And yet if you look to Jesus, he seems to put it really stinking high. Because in John chapter 17, when he's having kind of his, his parting words to the disciples, he's having this, this time with them where he's in the upper room discourse the last night before he dies. This is what he says. This is the prayer. It says, I do not ask for these only. He's talking to, about the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So for generations to come. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So his parting shot here is Jesus prays for a unity within the church that would mirror what? The unity within God. That's his prayer is that the unity amongst his followers would mirror the unity that exists in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit and the divine community of God. And so that is, that is like a profound prayer. And the purpose, what does he keep saying? The purpose so that the world may believe. The world may know. The world may look and see, yes, yes. How are we doing here? <laughs> and I imagine he prays this because he knows how difficult this is. He knows what a challenge this is going to be. He knows the roadblocks to unity. I, I read a report recently that said there are now over 40,000 denominations within Christianity. 40,000 within Christianity. It's hard to fathom. So it doesn't feel very united. And look, there are reasons to have disunity in a church. There are real reasons to um, break fellowship. There's no doubt about it. 
That being said, we shouldn't treat unity within the church as something of little importance, especially in light of the importance that Jesus places on it. So unity in our value system should really be parallel with truth. And I think for a lot of people, it's like truth, unity. And to Jesus, it's not. It's it's together. And so it's profoundly important because it profoundly impacts our witness, our ability to um, display who God is in a consistent way. And it's not just, I'm not even just talking about, this is not some secret message because we're coming up on a campaign and I don't want to see disunity, so let me get out in front. Because I'm not even just talking about unity within this church. I'm talking about unity within the church, the bride of Christ. Unity with, with our brothers and sisters in Africa. Unity with our brothers and sisters that we'll see next week in the Dominican Republic. Unity with other churches um, in, in our city as we go after the gospel together. It's been a blessing being here in Little Rock. I've gotten to be, even just this week, I was able to, I'm close with Stephen Smith out at Emmanuel. Love him. Love Emmanuel. Uh, Chad with Ben Parkinson on Friday. Love Ben Parkinson. We got to teach together in Fayetteville a few months back. Love fellowship. Love what, I mean, cheering for them. Texted with Rick Bazette at New Life. They're building down the road. Oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? We're gonna celebrate. We're going to celebrate and we're going to go after this community. You know what I'm saying? Harry Lee at Mosaic. It's been phenomenal to me since I've been here. It's been such a gift. BJ Strickland at um, the summit. Kyle Reno at the summit. Fantastic leaders. Because it, it, it's not about it, unity. You with me? And there's going to be distinctives. Like there's things we're going to do or not do that other churches do. And we can just say, cool, y'all do, you do you. And it's Okay. But we're still, we're playing together. You know what I'm saying? We're going after it together. We should celebrate one another's successes. We should be for one another. Because that's how our witness grows. And that's how we reach our city. We're not going to reach the entire city. We realize that, right? Like Christ's community is not going to, I mean, going to reach all of Little Rock. But the body of Christ can. And the team of local churches in our city can. So, there's a value here of unity. Another thing that I think we see, a kind of a key to victory is, and, and I don't know if this is the right phrase for it, so there's probably a better one, but there's a confidence amongst the Jews and there is a fear amongst their enemies. You see that? Look, look back in verse two and three again. It says, the Jews gathered their cities throughout the, the provinces to lay hands on those who sought their harm and no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. So to use a sports phrase, which none of us want to hear this morning, we're in the same boat this morning, aren't we? It is clear who has the momentum entering the battle. You with me? It's pretty obvious who's got the mojo, who's kind of got the energy, who's got the confidence. Now, a few months back before that second edict, I mean, the Jews are the walking dead. They're just kicking dirt. They're just counting down the days till they die. But Mordecai's edict comes, shot in the arm. Now we're ready. Now now there's confidence. There's belief. There's an attitude. There's 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 a confidence in what God is going to do through them. And that has led to doubt for their enemies. 
And so they're fighting from a place of unity and belief and their, their enemies, a place of disunity and fear. And that's going to pay dividends. And, it, and as I was studying this week, I could not help but to think of the events going on right now in Ukraine. And kind of a parallel, if you will, in Ukraine. Because when, when Russia invaded Ukraine in February, most of the news, most of the, the military experts said, man, Kiev is going to fall in days, if not, I mean, in weeks, if not days, right? I mean, it's just a, they're just going to get flattened. I mean, Russia, right? And yet here we are, and the battle still goes. And, and, and the question is, well, why? And it's multifactorial. We know that. But one of the main reasons is the soldiers of the Ukraine are fighting with a different unity and purpose than the Russian soldiers. There's just a complete difference, right? One is fighting because it's their job. The other is fighting because this is their home. And this is their family. And this is where they buried their parents. So they have a different unity and mission, and it shows. And then one of the things you continually hear from the battlefield, from the experts or from those who have uh, security clearance, or one of the things they're saying is the Russian troops' morale is what? Low. Well, of course it is. Because they're fighting in a place they're not accustomed to. They don't want to be there. They're disunity. They have a terrible leader and all these things. Whereas the Ukraine, hey, we're, we're, we're fighting. And we got some help coming our side. And so they have the energy. And you see that in this battle. The Jews all of a sudden are like, yeah, here we go, man. Bring it on. And the enemies, there's fear creeping in. And that's going to play a role. Now, how does that factor with us? Well, Jesus speaks to that, man. Jesus speaks this idea of fear, right? Look at, um, and once again, in the Gospel of John, that same upper room discourse, but this time in chapter 14, Jesus says these words. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So he's about to die. He's about to go away. And he says, here's the deal. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to lead you. And one of the ways he's going to lead you is this, is you can have the peace of the Lord. Like the guys he's looking at, they're all going to be killed. He's not saying, and once the Spirit comes, you're going to have an umbrella drink on the beach, living the dream. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, when the Spirit comes, he's going to lead you in all things, and you need not be afraid. Because the peace of God can reign in your heart. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid, because I bring peace. And just like disunity can destroy the witness of the church, you know what else can? Um, fear. Fear. And, and when the church's posture towards the world is nothing but doom and gloom, I mean, that's not a witness. And it's disobedient. It's disobedient to God's word. And there's a reason why one of the main commandments, one of the most repeated commandments in the entire scriptures is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You know what's the other main commandment? It's to be joyful. And so how can the people of God witness to the world with only doom and gloom 
when what they're commanded to do is to be people who are not afraid and of joy. And Jesus is not saying, put your head in the sand. You can't look at even our culture and say, well, Jesus didn't deal with a culture like we're dealing with. I mean, come on. It's first century Rome. The Christians make up like that percentage of the population. Like they're killing them left and right. It's totally difficult. But he's saying you can't be doom and gloom. And you need not be doom and gloom because you have the peace of the Lord, you have a joy in the heart, and you're victorious in the end. And so live in light of that. Don't, you don't need to put your head in. He's not saying put your head in the sand and pretend that, no, nothing's happening, everything's going great. He's not saying do that. But he's saying don't let that overwhelm the, the totality of who you are. Don't be oblivious to the challenges we face, but don't let the challenges we face continually put you in a posture of doom and gloom when we're called to not be afraid and have the joy of the Lord and the peace of God, knowing the victory that awaits. Does that make sense? And so the second thing is they fight with a confidence, not a fear. And then thirdly, thirdly, they've got great leadership. They've got great leadership. Look at verses three and four. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. So Mordecai's rise is instrumental to the Jews' success, to their success on the battlefield. Because leadership matters. Because his rise not only brings confidence to his people, like, man, we got Mordecai. He's number two. We got Mordecai's with us. Mordecai's one of us. But even the other officials are going, Mordecai's number two. I want to roll with that guy. He's pretty good. He seems to have the, the favor of the Lord upon him. And so all the officials want to fight with Mordecai. And when they have the support of the leadership, well, that makes a big difference. It's not a shock when you look at the, the human rights, um, the issues over even the last couple of centuries, there's been terrible leadership in those countries. So whether it's Nazi Germany, whether it's Stalin, Soviet Union, whether it's Pol Pot, whether it's Mao, that when, when there's these like, like horrible human rights violations, there's, it's almost always traced to terrible leadership because poor leadership destroys. And so the world needs Good leaders. And Mordecai's leadership is indispensable to their success. Now contrast his leadership with Haman. You know Haman's 10 sons. Will read their names really well. <laughs> they all died. So Haman's dead. His 10 sons are dead. And as a matter of fact, there's gonna be 75,000 that are dead by the end of this passage because of his stupid evil leadership. Didn't even have to happen. This whole thing's a stinking result of his evil. Well, how does he get to do that? Because he was number two. He was a leader, and his leadership destroyed. And you have the principle of, 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 of Jeremiah 23.1, where the prophet Jeremiah says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. He's saying, woe to them because their actions destroy 
those whom they lead. It destroys the sheep. Jesus says as much in, in Luke 11. He's speaking to the, the Pharisees. He says, one of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. I love that. You, you seem to be insulting us. <laughs> Jesus is like, oh, yeah, totally. And verse 46, and he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And then verse 52, he says, woe to you, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. He's saying, your leadership destroyed them. And so woe to you. And it's why he's so harsh with the Pharisees. Like, why is Jesus, so, I mean, you ever ask that question? Man, he's rough on those guys. What's his deal? What's his beef with the Pharisees? Is it just their theology he holds? No, tons of people hold that theology. It's that they're the ones leading. They're the leaders. And so the judgment is upon them because they're cratering those in their wake. They're destroying the sheep. And so leadership matters. And you may say, well, well I'm not a leader. Yes, you are. To some degree, you're a leader. And all of us, if you have at least one person following you, you're a leader. And so all of us are followers and all of us are leaders. And the question then just becomes, Whose leadership are you following? And what is happening to those whom you lead? Those are the two questions. Whose leadership are you following? You may say, well, I'm at the top of the food chain. You're still following someone. That's why another one, 13 times in the New Testament, what does Jesus say? Follow me. What does he tell Peter? Follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. Follow me, and in doing so, you will lead others, whether you're down here or up here. And so the questions that come is, who are you following, and what is your leadership producing? And so you have these, these three practical keys, and we may not get much further than that this morning. These, these keys of unity, faith, and leadership, all with one divine source, which is God. God is behind it all because we see God directing certain things in such a way, once again, not miraculous, but providential. The rise of Mordecai, the unity of the people, the fear of their enemy, all these things, Mordecai's edict, all these things have been brought about through his providential work. And behind it all is God, which is the story of Esther. And so if, if you kind of think of it this way, verse one, summary statement, Verses two through four, the keys to victory. Verse five, we get to the metrics. Let's get to the data, right? So the next section is kind of the data. And the data is they're having their way. It says, the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. Now, when it says they did as they pleased, it doesn't mean they are um, fighting dirty. It just means they are fighting with great success. The favor is upon them. And they are cutting down enemies left and right, 500 in the citadel, 10 of Haman's sons. I mean, it's a major successful day. And so the king gets this information and he reports it to Esther. So they're in the palace and he comes, talks to Esther and maybe, how's it going? He's like, well, I just got word. Man, I mean, they're carving them, carving them up. You got 500 in the citadel. I'm pretty sure. I mean, if that's happening in the citadel, just imagine what's happening out in the cities. And then he looks at Esther and he says, 
what else do you want, honey? I mean, this guy is into Esther, man. Okay? He's like, whatever you want. And then Esther's response is like, not what we expect. Right? Because Esther's response is this. If it pleased the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar. They killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. So Esther asked for two things. The king's like, what do you want, honey? She goes, oh, gosh. Two things. One, I want one more day so we can kill them all. And two, I want all 10 of Haman's sons hanging on the gallows publicly. Is that cool? And the king's like, sure, sweetie. Whatever you want. I mean, it, it, it's really amazing. But when you step, take a step back, it's, it's not. Because she's asking for this for a purpose. It's, it's really twofold. One, she's not just here to uh, deal with the threat. She's going to eliminate the enemy. Like, she's going to get rid of them. She's not just in a deal where she wants to stiff arm them, that she wants to run over them. And so she has for another day, because she has wind, hey, we need another day to, to take them out. And then number two, she's like, and we got to send a message that if you come against God's people, if you come against us, this is what's going to happen. If you follow poor leadership, this is what's going to happen. If you go the way of Haman, this is what's going to happen. And so I want the 10 bodies displayed for all to see, because that's what happens when you go against us. So she sends a message. So it's hardcore, no doubt. But that's the reasoning behind it. And, and when we read that, and, and I'd like to spend more time here, maybe next week, but when, when we read that, it brings up some issues, right? Of, um, like anybody who reads the Bible all the way through and they come talk to me, they're almost always like, um, number one, man, there's a lot I didn't know. Number two, Man, like Leviticus really is not the easiest book to read. Okay. And number three, like, there's a lot of blood. Like, there's a, there's a lot of violence. And there is. I'm a, I mean, the Bible is not a book for the squeamish. It, it, it is not rated G. I mean, there is war and there is murder and there is rape and there is violence and, it, and there's a fair amount of it, especially in the Old Testament. And it can really, like, people start going, oh, man, I, I, I don't know how to put these pieces together when it comes to violence. Because sometimes it's against the people of God, but sometimes it is the people of God, and sometimes God seems totally cool with it. And so how does this all work together this, with this benevolent, loving God? And, and it's kind of funny. I, I've told Will before, but I want to preach a series one time here at Christ Community, and it's called... Hard things in the Bible from genocide to polygamy. I probably won't do that during the capital campaign or like <laughs> when we enter into the new building. But at some point, I'm going to do a series that says hard things in the Bible from genocide to polygamy and, and just kind of just lay it out there and just let's, let's walk through some of the hard stuff that we read because it's, we really should, we, we don't need to ignore it. Let's, let's process through it. But let me just give a few things on violence. And like I said, maybe I'll come back here next week, not to violence, but like to these ideas. 
because it's, it, it is worth thinking through. And so let me just give you four, four points, and on the fourth, we'll enter into communion. Uh, number one, violence is a result of sin. And so we, even from the fall, you have the fall, and then you have the first murder in Genesis 4 among siblings. And so all violence is a result of sin. It's not how God created or designed humans to interact or to live out the relationship with him and one another. And so all violence is a result of sin. But in a fallen world, not all violence is sin. Violence is not always sin. So Jesus is not a pacifist. God is not a pacifist. And I have much respect for our brothers and sisters, who, like, a, like the Quakers or somebody who may have a more pacifist um, mentality. But I, I don't think that totally squares up with the scriptures. Um, there are times for violence. Um, one of them we see is when you're uh, self-defense. You see that in the scriptures, a right to defend yourself. That's why there's so much literature given to what's called a, a Christian just theory of war. It's one of the reasons why three times, but there's a right way to do it. Because so three times in the scriptures, three times in this passage, what does it say? And they took no plunder. And they took no plunder. It's not gratuitous. It's they are defending their existence. And God's saying that that is reasonable. Thirdly, violence is temporary in our world of sin. It's not how God designed it, and it's not how it will always be. That is confined to our fallen world. That's why in Revelation chapter 21, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither sh there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So it's, it's inevitable. At times it's permissible, but it is temporary. Because there is a day coming. There is a day coming. And, and that really leads us into our, our fourth point and where we will take communion, which is violence was used to defeat sin. Now, that's a hard thing to even, so follow me here. Because that can make you uncomfortable. And I'm not saying violence was the primary means. Love was. Love was. But think about the great reversal in the cross. Jesus didn't redeem us through a sermon. He didn't redeem us through, um, by feeding the 5,000. He didn't redeem us by organizing small groups. Redemption was purchased by his blood. And it was graphic, and it was gory, and it was painful, and it was awful, and it was how we receive victory. It was the payment for our sin that shows the awful. So he used the awfulness of violence on display to bring about the beauty of his grace and love as he poured out his blood for our sin by giving his life for the sake of many. And so he completely thwarts violence by being the recipient and through that bringing life. 
and through that bringing the chance for us to be in a place and be in a world where there is no pain and there is no violence. So he has the last laugh. He has the last moment. And when we think of it that way, we understand that God can use all things for his glory. All things. And it's in that context that we celebrate communion. And so when we celebrate communion, because our passage day ends with a feast, and we'll finish Esther next week and look at the feast that comes from this battle. Well, Jesus, in his last moments, he has a feast. And as he tells his believers, when you come together, do this in remembrance of me. And so as we gather this morning, we're going to take communion together. And it is available for any who are followers of Jesus Christ who've trusted in him. And so what I want to do is give you a couple moments right now to go before the Lord, to just confess before him. If there's something you need to confess, if there's something you need to get right before we take the elements together, and then I'll come back up in a couple of minutes, we'll take them together.